KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, hosting an open house to learn about the upcoming classes and seminars, member benefits, and meet the volunteer leadership team. Saturday, March 30th. Registration at extendedstudies.ucsd.edu slash O-L-L-I. It's time for Roundtable. I'm Matt Hoffman. Starting out our show this week, the Board of Supervisors has decided that Nathan Fletcher's 4th District seat will be determined by a special election. We'll hear why they made that decision. Plus, San Diego's ambitious pure water project is running into some challenges, and that's forcing officials to lower expectations. And train service connecting San Diego to Orange County and Los Angeles is once again out of commission. Don't go anywhere. Roundtable is coming up next. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, hosting an open house to learn about the upcoming classes and seminars, member benefits, and meet the volunteer leadership team. Saturday, March 30th. Registration at extendedstudies.ucsd.edu slash O-L-L-I. Some San Diegans will be voting in an election this year. The Board of Supervisors has decided that Nathan Fletcher's 4th District seat will be determined by a special election. That's happening in August. Fletcher was accused of sexual assault and harassment by a former colleague earlier this year. He denies those allegations, saying it was a consensual affair, but he says he's resigning in less than a couple of weeks. Here to break down the latest developments and the fallout from the scandal is NBC San Diego's political reporter Priya Shreether. And Priya, welcome back to Roundtable. Thanks for having me. Great to have you here. You know, the last time that you were here with our panel of guests, we were discussing what the Board of Supervisors was going to do, you know, post-Fletcher leaving the board. They could have appointed somebody, but the supervisors decided to have the voters decide. Why did they feel that this was the right move? How did they get here? So I think one thing to keep in mind is the Board of Supervisors is definitely under a microscope right now. So I think that uh, part of their thought process was the fact that they were concerned about appointing someone to that position and then having constituents from District 4 not being happy with whoever they chose. So, you know, this is a very large district. It's a very diverse district. There's almost 700,000 people that live in District 4. So I think they really felt that having a special election was the right thing to do. It's also important to keep in mind that Nathan Fletcher was just elected to this position again. So he still has, you know, almost three and a half years left on his term. His term doesn't expire until 2027. So I think that was another factor in the decision-making process. If perhaps, you know, there was only, you know, maybe six months left on his term, it wouldn't have made sense necessarily to do a special election. What's interesting is they didn't choose to do an appointment and then an election because the way things stand right now, District 4 isn't going to have elected representation between when that resignation is effective, which is May 15th, until potentially August or November, sometime in that time frame. Another sort of thing that the supervisors were discussing when they made this uh, vote was the fact that a special election is going to cost a lot of money. So um, there were a lot of 
uh, pros and cons to each of the courses of action that they could have pursued. But ultimately, they felt as though a special election was the best choice, the best of the worst choices, I should say. But that wasn't like the unanimous consensus right away, right? I mean, I think some of your reporting even showed that, you know, at least one of the Democrats and one of the Republicans wanted to appoint somebody, but they ended up unanimously going the special election route. Yeah, that's right. I have to say, as someone who's been following this extremely closely, it was a little bit surprising to see that they came to that unanimous decision kind of quickly. I should say that there was 80 public commenters who gave hours of public comment, and it was actually pretty evenly split. Some people were saying that they preferred the appointment process because it would have gotten everything over with and the seat filled a lot sooner than going to a special election. Um And so, as you mentioned, yeah, Supervisor Joel Anderson, who's a Republican, and Supervisor Tara Lawson-Reamer had indicated that they preferred an appointment process. And part of the reason for that, which um, Supervisor Lawson-Reamer brought up in the discussions the other day, was that historically there is a low voter turnout during special elections that could even be as low as 10 to 15 percent. So her thought process was, you know, is it really representative of the entire district if only 10 to 15 percent of the people turn out? Another concern that Supervisor Anderson expressed to me is that this is a very short time frame to have an election. I mean, we're talking 90 days, essentially. And so uh, it's really difficult for candidates to campaign in such a short time frame. It's going to be difficult for them to fundraise. And so his argument was that probably the most successful person in those parameters is going to be someone who already has name recognition, which perhaps is going to be someone who's already part of the political establishment. So those were their concerns going into it. And then, of course, the number one reason that even Supervisor Jim Desmond at the very beginning of all of this when the scandal sort of broke, he had said, that, you know, this is uh, the estimations to hold a special election are anywhere from two to five million dollars. And that money, by the way, comes out of the county's general fund. So theoretically, that money is being taken away from, you know, road or infrastructure projects or perhaps homelessness programs and going towards a special election. And that's kind of a big change to have to, you know, dole out that they weren't necessarily expecting. So um, those were kind of all of the arguments against the special election. But I think that, like I said, you know, Chair Vargas, after the vote happened, she held a little bit of a press conference and basically said that she believed that, you know, they could do a lot of public outreach, get those numbers up and really try to solicit candidates to come forward and make this a competitive election. You just mentioned the low turnout that can happen in special elections. Can you sort of break this down for us? I remember reading it and I thought it was interesting. So someone has to get a majority vote here, right? Like 50 plus one. And if that doesn't happen, then we're headed for another election later this year? Correct. So the first election or perhaps the only election will be on August 15th. However, if there's a crowded field of candidates there, there's a really high probability that no one is going to get that 51% of the vote, in which case we would go to a runoff essentially on November 7th. And that would be the top two vote getters from the August election would then move on. So like I said, I mean, this this is something where we might not have someone actually in place and in that seat for several months. Another thing to keep in mind, though, is that 
Nathan Fletcher's office is not closed. So District 4 still has representation in the form of staffers. Those are the people who worked for Supervisor Fletcher, but they also, you know, overall, they work for the county. So they're still answering the phone. There's still constituent services that are there. And the remaining four supervisors made it abundantly clear in the meeting this week that you know, they're also available and their doors are open if any constituents from District 4 are feeling as though, for whatever reason, their concerns aren't being heard or or are not being addressed. So even though there's not technically an elected official to go out to events in District 4 and to, you know, to vote, I should say as well, because remember, we have two Republicans remaining on the board, Joel Anderson and Jim Desmond, and then two Democrats, Nora Vargas and Tara Lawson-Reamer. So there also is some concern over the fact that when it comes to voting, there could be gridlock there if it's always going to be a 2-2 vote. But the fact that there was a unanimous vote when it came to how to proceed with this seat, uh, I guess it's a little bit of a sign that maybe they can come to a consensus despite the fact that there is a 50-50 split. Well, they're going to have to learn to work together, it sounds like, at least for a little bit longer. And Fletcher's fourth supervisor's seat, he says he plans to vacate it soon. You said May 15th. That district covers central and southeast San Diego, and it also goes out east a bit to Lemon Grove, La Mesa, and parts of Spring Valley. Have there been any candidates coming forward saying that they want his job? Yeah, so so far there are there have been three announcements. The first person to announce that she was interested in this job uh, was back in February. So that was before any of this happened and the sort of expedited timeline. Her name, some of you guys might be familiar with her, is Janessa Goldbeck. She's a Marine Corps veteran. Uh, She's a nonprofit leader, and she ran for Congress in 2020 against Sarah Jacobs. She's also a Democrat. Um, Another popular name that many of you may have heard of is San Diego City Council member Monica Montgomery Stepp. She recently announced that she was willing to either go through the appointment process or toss her name into the ring for a special election. And then the third candidate also might be familiar to some, the only Republican so far, Amy Riker. She ran against Nathan Fletcher um, in the last election cycle. She, of course, lost, but she gained a lot of momentum amongst the crowd of people who were really against uh, some of the policies that Nathan Fletcher was promoting during the pandemic. Uh, She was part of that reopen San Diego movement, and so she's really popular with that group of people in San Diego. So Priya, this whole special election, it hinges on one big move, and that's Fletcher ultimately resigning when he says he's going to. And when the lawsuit came forward from a former transit employee accusing Fletcher of improper conduct, he quickly said that he was going to resign. But, you know, people have asked for it to be right away. But he says May 15th is when he'll quit. There was an interesting piece in the Spanish publication La Prensa earlier this week. The author there made the argument for why Fletcher may not actually resign. It was sort of a hypothetical, obviously, but have you heard anything on that front? Like, is this the plan still to resign come May 15th? So all signs are pointing to that being the case. Uh, Some reporters were asking Chair Vargas that. After the vote happens the other day, basically, you know, are there any concerns that Supervisor Fletcher might not resign? And she said all signs are pointing to the fact that he will resign. I should also say I've spoken to several of his staffers and they say that the offices are getting packed up. They don't believe that they're ever going to see him in that office again. So everyone's kind of moving forward under the assumption that he's going to follow through with what he had originally said. No one 
that I know of has actually spoken directly to him since he made that announcement that he was going to resign. We asked Chair Vargas, when was the last time you talked to him? And she said it was in a closed session meeting before he announced the end of his state Senate campaign and the fact that he was checking himself into inpatient treatment. And the spokesperson who works for Supervisor Fletcher has maintained that he's been in inpatient treatment this entire time. So we don't know exactly when he's supposed to get out of that treatment. All we know is that he reportedly is out of the state of California. So I guess time will tell on May 15th if that turns out to be the case. But yeah, there were, I guess, in that LaPrenza article, it outlined the argument that perhaps he would try to maintain his county position to try to take advantage of county legal services to represent him in this lawsuit that he was named in. However, it's important to keep in mind that in the lawsuit, Nathan Fletcher is one of the parties named and also MTS, but not the county of San Diego. So that's a huge, a huge difference. And MTS has said that they're not going to cover any of Nathan Fletcher's legal fees. So, yeah, that, I mean, there's obviously a lot of theories floating around, um, a lot of rumors, a lot of hypotheticals. But as far as the actual facts and what what he has said, he's maintained that effective May 15th at 5 p.m., he's done with this job. And we appreciate you bringing the facts here to this show and setting the record straight on some of this. Uh, Also, Priya, can you go back a little bit and and remind us of some of the allegations against Fletcher? And uh, I was going to ask if we've heard from him at all recently, but it sounds like that's also a no. Yes. uh, No one that I know of, like I said, has actually spoken directly to him. The allegations that are outlined in the lawsuit uh, involve a former MTS employee who met Nathan Fletcher, who is the chair of the board of MTS. And it started with uh, sort of flirtatious direct messages on Instagram that Nathan Fletcher initiated that then escalated. In the lawsuit, it outlines that he kissed her without her consent. And subsequently, a few weeks later, after an MTS board meeting, he allegedly cornered her in a conference room and sexually assaulted her without her consent. So those were the allegations. Since then, a former intern of a nonprofit that he had several years ago, who was 19 years old at the time of her allegations, um, she was a student at UCSD, said that she had sort of similar experiences with him, that she went on a business trip um, out of the state of California that he was on and that he allegedly grabbed her and also tried to invite her to his hotel room for a massage. He has also denied those allegations as well. And this week, we actually heard from, or at least in an online way, the former transit employee, Gracia Figueroa, who is claiming the sexual harassment and assault by Fletcher. Uh, What did that online blog post say? Yeah. So, you know, this is a difficult situation because I have actually been speaking to Gracia and, you know, she's not able to do any interviews, of course, because this is pending litigation and her lawyer is advising her that that wouldn't be appropriate. So I think this blog post was an attempt for her to say something about what's going on. Uh, She didn't 
at all talk about any of the allegations that were outlined in the lawsuit. Instead, what she's talking about is how difficult it is for women to come forward in workplace settings and report any sort of sexual harassment or discrimination. Um, One of the more powerful quotes was she said that sometimes women are accused of being gold diggers, um, mistresses. So it was unclear. She didn't come all the way out and say that that's what's been happening to her, but that's certainly what was alluded to in the post. So I think that was her way of trying to say something, but in a very controlled fashion. And obviously that lawsuit's still pending. Not a lot of news on that front. But Priya, as we wrap up here, we're less than two weeks away from when Fletcher says he will resign. You've been following this story for a while now. What are you going to be watching for or what questions do you still have uh, here in the coming days? I think they're very similar to the last time I was on Roundtable (laughs) and we were discussing this. You know, there's always this thought process that when we see stories like this, sometimes when one accuser comes forward with allegations, oftentimes that can empower someone who potentially had similar experiences to also come out and talk. But I think there are still huge questions that are raised concerning MTS and what they knew and when, because initially they were trying to say that they had no idea about these allegations or about the lawsuit. However, Gracia Figueroa's attorney provided a 13-page document that he had presented to MTS in mid-February, essentially asking them to preserve evidence and communications of about 14 MTS employees. And the document outlined the potential allegations that were to come. So even though they maintained the fact that they didn't know anything, that that document on its own seems to indicate otherwise. So I would love to be on the inside of one of their closed session board meetings because it seems like there's a lot of confusion amongst the members about what exactly happened, how it happened, what the timeline was. And I think the questions that they have are the questions that the larger public has as well. I've been speaking with Priya Shreeder. She's a political reporter with NBC San Diego. And Priya, always great to have you here. Thanks for having me. We'd love to hear from you. What do you think about the decision to hold a special election for the supervisor seat? You can email us at roundtable at kpbs.org or give us a call, 619-452-0228. You can leave us a voicemail there, but be sure to leave your name and what city you're calling from, as we may use your message in a future show. Coming up, we're taking a look into the potential changes and delays for San Diego's Pure Water Project. That's where the city's turning sewage into drinking water. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, hosting an open house to learn about the upcoming classes and seminars, member benefits, and meet the volunteer leadership team. Saturday, March 30th. Registration at extendedstudies.ucsd.edu slash O-L-L-I. San Diego's ambitious Pure Water Project is running into some challenges, and that's forcing officials to lower expectations. The Pure Water Project is all about turning San Diego's sewage into drinking water. It's the largest infrastructure project in San Diego City history. The aim is to supply half of the city's drinking water, and that's by 2035. Here to tell us more about what's happening is San Diego Union-Tribune reporter David Garrick. David, welcome back to Roundtable. Thanks for having me. 
Great to have you here. I know you've been following the story for a while. Can you first give our listeners some background about this Pure Water project? It's going to cost billions of dollars. And when all said and done, why do city officials want to recycle sewage and turn it into drinking water? Well, the goal is to make San Diego independent of, you know, uh, importing water from the Colorado River uh, and buying water from other places. Uh, And that's especially important to make the city drought proof, uh, you know, as uh, climate change becomes more severe. There's sort of more reason to worry about our long term water supply. So this would make San Diego independent. So two phases in this project, and you write that the city is currently about halfway through phase one of it, but it sounds like that there's some major adjustments on the way. What's sort of changing? Uh, yeah, there's two, one small one and, and, and one big one, but the small one is, is much sooner. So the city ran into some problems with a pump station on Morena Boulevard near Friars Road uh, with flooding at the site. And so that is one of the 10 projects that the city is building that's just not going to be done on time. It's going to be done about a year late. And the whole project operates sort of as a ballet, a choreographed ballet with all these different pipelines and pump stations and purification stations working together. So when one key element is missing, you're kind of in a bad situation. But the city doesn't want to delay the start of the whole thing until 2026. So uh, they're going to start on a smaller scale in 2025 as scheduled but they're only going to be able to recycle about 12 million gallons of sewage every day as opposed to the originally planned 30 million. So it's only about 40%. But then in late 2026, they'll get up to that 30 million goal they had in the beginning. So be a temporary delay for about one year. Uh, and the second big change is more long-term. The city's plan initially had been to recycle the water from a second purification plant that will be built about 10 years from now. They were going to build that purification plant in Mission Valley and then recycle the water out in the back country in San Vicente Reservoir. But they're considering shifting to much closer Lake Murray, which could save some money, but there's some technical issues that come with that. So those are the two big changes they're contemplating. And we'll get into that second big change in just a couple minutes here. So on the first phase, if production is going to be cut, at least in the short term, do we know any idea of what the impact could be for residents, like either in terms of water bills or even just the amount of water that is going to be available in our region? Yeah, I mean, it makes San Diego's water independence that much farther off into the future. And I imagine, I guess... The supply that the city would have that year, they would have to continue to spend more on imported water that year. So I guess bills could be a little higher. But again, I think that's sort of a uh, relatively minor change. It's definitely a significant change, only 40% of the water that first year. But if plans go according to the way they'd like them to go, by late 2026, the city will be where they should have been in mid-2025. And you mentioned that all these phase one delays, they're stemming from flooding at the Morena Boulevard pump station. That's been an ongoing issue, right? I, mean, I think I remember you talking about it on this show. I mean, why can't like city officials get that under control? Well, I wouldn't say that they failed to get it under control. The problem was that they got what they call bad uh, blueprints, bad uh, diagrams showing what the water table was there. And there may be some litigation about that someday. But the contractor that they hired went forward with those bad diagrams and literally could not flush the water out. And you can't build a pump station if the site is covered in water all day long. So the contractor said, we we can't do this. So the city was forced to come up with a plan. They came up with sort of an elaborate plan. Uh, maybe some would call it elegant if it works. The idea was to build a bathtub around the pump station so that the water can no longer get into the area where the construction is taking place. That project was just completed at the beginning of this month, uh, cost about $13 million. 
But because it took a year to deal with that, construction of the pump station hasn't been happening for the past year. They've been building that wall and trying to solve the problem and then building the wall. So everything on that particular project is a year behind. And that's what's creating the problem because that part of the pure water pipeline won't be ready to dance with the other parts. When the other parts are ready, it'll be a year behind. I like that metaphor, the dancing. And so in this dance, still talking about the first phase of this project, with this delay, you know, that's going to push some things back, but something is still set to open in 2025, right? Or has that been changing too? So in 2025, they're going to use every part of the water pipeline except the Morena Boulevard pump station, the one that was delayed. That's why they can only do 12 million gallons because all the sewage that that was going to be pumping up from Point Loma to the purification plant, which is in Miramar, that's not going to be coming up. So they're going to have to purify sewage that already exists up in the northern part of the city. There's less of it up there, so they can only create 12 million gallons a day. So for one year, they'll only be doing 12 million gallons a day. Then once the Morena pump station is ready, then they will be able to ramp up to the full 30 million gallons they've always planned. So let's talk about phase two of this project. I think you mentioned it's set to be complete by 2035, but it sounds like more changes are coming there too. To me, the way I read it from your story was it sounds like the city wants to store the recycled water closer to where it's actually being treated at and recycled at. I mean, that sounds good on paper, but can you kind of break down why they're looking to change the game plan now? I think they would say in their defense that when they were planning this, you know, this planning for this began 15, 20 years ago. I mean, no one really knew how these things were going to get regulated and get approved. So, I mean, while they are making significant changes, I think they always would have called it a rough draft. Um, but the rough draft plan was to have the second purification plant, which will be larger than the first one. The one in Miramar is going to be capable of 30 million gallons a day. The one in Mission Valley will be capable of 53 million gallons a day. So it's almost twice as big. That the original plan was to have the purified sewage from that plant go out into the backcountry in San Vicente Reservoir, which is between Lakeside and Ramona, pretty far out there. Uh, the reason that the city needed to use that was because the volume of water is so big that you need a really large reservoir and no other reservoir nearby is big enough to handle it. Because that's the old method, the old or the existing, and it's going to be old soon, uh, method of doing this purification process is you purify the water, then you put it in a reservoir. It has to stay there for several months to mix with rain and other natural water, as opposed to putting the, the purified sewage directly into the water supply. That's the new modern version, which looks like it's going to be approved. San Diego may have the first such a version of that in the whole state. The state has been required by new legislation to approve that type of recycling, where the recycled water, to repeat, goes directly into the water system instead of staying in a reservoir for a while. So if that gets approved, then San Diego could pump the purified sewage directly into the Alvarado treatment plant at Lake Murray. That way they wouldn't have to build all the pipelines out to San Vicente Reservoir, which would save lots and lots of money. But if you do this new type of recycling, it actually requires more treatment because the water isn't going to be in a reservoir mixing with natural water. And city officials have told me even though they would save maybe a billion dollars not building all of the pipeline out to San Vicente, maybe several hundred million, it's hard to know because it's 12 years out, right? But they're gonna, most of that savings will get eaten up by the need to do a more aggressive purification process because you won't be putting it in a reservoir. And I don't know if you know the answer to this question, but in terms of that purification process, you know, for me or maybe other people listening, it can kind of be hard to picture how you get from, you know, sewage to a glass of drinking water. Do you have like a basic explanation of how that water gets treated? 
Yes, I haven't read about that in a while because we sort of passed that phase. But I remember, I remember from when we wrote about it when they first were getting it approved in 2014. And it's basically it goes through uh, um, these there, there is reverse osmosis and there's light and they use lasers, all the stuff you would normally use. But the sort of the key, the magic part of the process is it goes through these filters I don't know how to describe it. They're like uh, um, all the the impurities get trapped as it passes through the membrane, and the water becomes uh, uh, purified. And so it's a pretty a pretty amazing, impressive process. Uh, and we aren't the first to do it. it. Started, I believe, Israel was the first country to do it. It's, it's been, a, and Orange County's been doing it for a while. Um, but San Diego's is going to be the first, maybe, to go to that directly pumping it into the water system. Yeah, when when you said back in 2014, I know this has been in the works for a long time. Is that I remember like a photo of or video of then San Diego Mayor Kevin Faulkner drinking a glass of water that I believe was used to be sewage water. Is that the same project? That's the same project. That was the test plant. They had to do a test plant at Miramar to prove they could do it before the state would allow them to build the real plant. So they built a little small test plant that could do, I think, a million gallons a day so that they get approval to build the one that can do 30. Proof of concept. Um, but going back to some of these changes, you know, they sound like some major changes happening. And we know that this is the city's largest ever infrastructure project. You know, it's spread out over, I mean, it sounds like decades. Was the plan to like a, a sort of adjust expectations as the city goes? Or are some of these things like the flooding or even changing where they're going to, you know, hold the reservoir? Are they sort of just like out of left field, like happening without any planning? Certainly the flooding was out of left field and, and the city will, you know, blame the, the, comp- the engineering company that gave them the water table analysis. And I'm sure that company will say it's not their fault. So that's, and that's sort of a reminder when you're doing a project of this vast scale and of this much cost, you know, four to five billion dollars. I mean, there's going to be problems that arise. I think it's almost inevitable. So those, those were out of left field. As far as this, as I said earlier, as far as the second half, I think they always knew the plan they had was a rough draft. In fact, I think when I was originally covering it in 2014, the a plan for the second purification plant was going to be near the airport and solar turbines on Pacific Highway. And I can't remember the reasoning why they switched it to Mission Valley. Um, it had something to do with the water table there. Or I, I can't remember. I don't want to get it wrong. But so they always knew that phase two was sort of an idea. They knew the volume of, of sewage that phase two would recycle, but they really never knew where they would do it. They knew it had to be close to Point Loma, though, because it had to be closer to the, the treatment plant. But they didn't really know specifically where they would do it. So this, I don't think it's fair to criticize them for sort of like flying by the seat of their pants. They always knew phase two would be sort of something that they would figure out as they went. And phase two of this project sounds like it would more than double the amount of recycled drinking water that's supposed to be happening starting in 2025 or 2026. Could we expect that goal to change, whether it be the amount or even the date that the phase two project is completed? I don't think the amount, well, I guess, I guess anything could change, but I've never heard any plans to change the amount. But interestingly, when I, when I first wrote about pure water in 2014, it was only supposed to supply one third of the city's water supply. Right now, it's going to supply the exact same amount, but new projections indicate that's going to be half because the amount of development and the amount of, of water use that's happening because of conservation and drought has actually changed. So the ratio that pure water will supply has gone from one third to one half without increasing the amount of water being purified at all. So the ratio might increase or decrease, but I think the number 83 million gallons will stay roughly the same. I think, and also there's another element to this. They have to recycle that sewage instead of pumping it out into the ocean like they do now. So this solves sort of two things at once. One, you're creating a a water supply for the city. And two, you're solving the problem of the outdated Point Loma treatment plant not 
properly purifying the sewage. So instead of putting it into an outfall all the way out into the ocean, you're going to be purifying it. So they sort of have to keep purifying the same sort of amount that they initially envisioned. So we've been talking a lot about these potential changes, whether it be in phase one or phase two. Has the city said, do they have any idea what the impact could be on the overall budget for this project? Like, I'm not sure if you can sort of bottom line it for our listeners. Like, is taxpayer money going to be saved or are we going to be spending more here? Well, I mean, I guess it depends on from what angle you look at it. I mean, if if the city did nothing, they would have to spend three or four billion dollars building a new sewage treatment plant in Point Loma. So theoretically, you spend it one way or you spend it the other. But compared to the world where you don't have to do anything, yes, it's it's going to cost more. This project's going to cost the first phase is cost about one point two billion. The second phase, their estimate now is three billion. Because it's 12 years out with inflation and other things, it may not be $3 billion, but that's the estimate now. And it'll probably be $3 billion in 2023 dollars. And even though in 2035 it may be $6 billion, right, it'll still be the same amount of actual of money. And unusual when you say taxpayer dollars, because this is not a city project like building a fire station where it comes from sales tax and property tax. This comes from the city's water fund, which is basically funded directly by water customers. So it's not funded by our ordinary tax dollars. Every year they figure out how much it costs to run the water system, and then people get charged their bills based on on what the costs are. So water bills and sewer bills will be going up because of this. Yeah, that was kind of going to be one of my other follow-up questions there. So you mentioned the, the money coming from water bills. Is that solely what's paying for, you know, whatever it may be, this $4 billion for the total here? Uh, luckily, they've gotten some federal grants and I think some state grants because this is something that everyone wants to see happen because it, it creates cleaner water. It's environmentally friendly. You know, uh, President Biden and, and the, the federal uh, infrastructure bill has a lot of uh, climate friendly uh, grants and loans. So uh, in some ways, the city is able to finance this using those. But I think the bulk of it is going to be paid by ratepayers. They got some some large state and federal loans, but those have to be paid back. They're low interest, like 2%, but they do have to be paid back which will be on the backs of the water and sewer ratepayers. And just doing the math in my head, it sounds like you've been covering the story for, if not a decade, almost a decade. So you're definitely an expert here. What's next or, or what are you going to be watching for as we move forward? I know we're not even to phase one yet, but what's sort of on your radar? Yeah, this is a key year for both phases, but phase two, I'd say almost more so because they are, the city is planning to decide this year whether to go with Lake Murray or stick with the old San Vicente plan, which they may end up having to stick with. You don't know for sure. And the state is required by the end of this calendar year to come up with guidelines for approval of directly putting the purified sewage into the water system. They're expected to have those uh, regulations done by the end of the year, and the city's expected to get approval. But there could be hiccups along the way, as we know, and then that could change everything, force them to go back to San Vicente, force them to delay the thing by a couple years. So this is a key year for phase two, and that's obviously a key year for phase one, because phase one is being built right now all around us. It sounds like a very complicated project, a lot of money, especially when you use that B word, billions in there. But David Garrick with the San Diego Union Tribune, we appreciate your time and we appreciate you following this story. Thanks very much. We'd love to hear from you. You can email us at roundtable at kpbs.org or you can give us a call at 619-452-0228. You can leave us a voice message there. Be sure to leave your name and what city you're calling from, and we may play your message on a future show. Coming up, rail lines are closed in San Clemente. It's stopping train service connecting San Diego and Orange Counties again. What officials are saying is needed to get the tracks back open. 
train service connecting San Diego to Orange and Los Angeles counties is once again out of commission. This time, it's due to a landslide that happened near the tracks. This closure is just the latest disruption in rail service in the area. Trains had just begun moving up north two weeks ago, and that was after a previous closure that lasted several months. The Union Tribune is now reporting freight rail service has resumed in the area, but passenger trains are still out of service. Here's what San Clemente Mayor Chris Duncan had to say about the current landslide situation. It's going to be a long process because, yeah, we don't even have things stabilized right now. And so we certainly can't do any work or get up on that hillside. We might do more damage than good if we got up there right now with trying to do anything. This most recent closure puts more focus on long-term solutions for the train lines, including plans to maybe move the tracks inland. Joining us now is KPBS's North County reporter, Tanya Thorne. Tanya, welcome back to Roundtable. Thanks for having me, Matt. Sounds like a string of bad luck up here. I can't imagine what people are thinking who rely on this for school or work, this train service to get here. What is going on up in San Clemente? Why does the rail lines, why do they need to close again? Yes, a series of unfortunate events, unfortunately. (laughs) So last week on Thursday, a landslide occurred on the slope of where the Casa Romantica Cultural Center sits. And now the landslide took out a pretty large part of the back patio of the historic house. It's really um, a sight to see. If you haven't seen the the videos and the pictures, it's definitely, um, you know, just astonishing to see that much damage to this beautiful historic house. And that debris fell down the hill towards the rail line. It didn't hit the rail line, but it came pretty close. And so this caused the cultural center to close be red flagged and, you know, therefore canceled events that were going to be held there and weddings. And it also halted rail service through that area. And uh, I know a residential building that was that is next door to the house was also evacuated, displacing some of the residents living in the building. Uh, Luckily, I think the majority were vacation rentals, but some residents were displaced. And all of this is just out out of an abundance of safety because Mother Nature is out of anyone's control here. And when we talk about rail service, what exactly are we talking about? Like I think of the Amtrak train, but is it more than that? Yes, I mean, it's passenger trail service. So no passengers can travel from San Diego to Orange County via the train right now. Like all the way through, there is a bus bridge in between. So you can get to Orange County, but it just won't be fully on the train. There's a big interruption here right now, again. Sounds like a lot of impact. Do officials have any idea of what caused the landslide? Like are homes just too close to the tracks? And I noticed in Seeing some of that video, obviously it's very devastating, but the spillage, as you can call it, isn't necessarily on the train tracks, but it's, I know it's close. Yeah, you know, unfortunately, these events are happening more and more along the coast. And this all really has to do with the weather and coastal erosion. We experienced extreme rainfall this winter and many of our roadways and hillsides suffered. While the cause for this specific landslide hasn't been pinpointed or announced, the weather is looking like a culprit here. 
as well as just the elements. You know, this is right by the beach. We're talking, you know, all the wind and the rain and the just the salt from, you know, the ocean. And we're seeing more bluffs collapsing and beaches are disappearing, more and more sand. You know, we're losing our beaches. And unfortunately, officials are predicting more of these events as a result of climate change. We heard from the San Clemente mayor up top. Maybe simple question. I don't know if it's a simple answer, though, Tanya. How do they get the train service up and running again? I mean, just like he said, right, it's going to take a long time um, because as of now, no solution has been announced. I haven't been able to get really a clear answer from anybody. And, you know, back in September, when rail service was suspended, when some movement was detected in another area of the rail line in San Clemente, emergency repairs to stabilize that area and restore rail service then got approved. But they cost around $13 million. And, you know, Matt, these repairs are what many officials are now calling a Band-Aid because it's a short-term fix. The long-term fix is to relocate the rail lines inland and continue putting sand on disappearing beaches and figuring out a way to keep beaches from disappearing so quickly. All solutions that, you know, just sound expensive are expensive and are, I feel like, are going to take years to get approved and actually shovel-ready and going. And Tanya, when we talk about this, this is a pretty important rail corridor, right? Can you sort of put it in perspective for us, like, how many people use it to travel or how many goods go through there? At this point, I've covered this so much that I, I do know. <laughs> it's very busy and very important. It's what we call the Losan Rail Corridor, which travels from San Diego through Los Angeles and all the way to San Luis Obispo. It's the second busiest rail corridor in the nation and moves about 8 million passengers and $1 billion worth of goods every year. So it's not only impacting travelers, but like I said, our freight and our military. So ultimately, this closure is creating a speed bump for all of these parties and travelers and goods to get through. So Everyone from the local, state, and federal government are trying to work on a solution and find one quickly, as quickly as we can hope. And I I think you just alluded to it, that these tracks had just reopened for service just last month after being closed for more than six months. Uh, Quickly, why were they closed for that six months? Was it another landslide situation, or or what, what was that reason? It wasn't a landslide, but it was uh, some movement that was detected on another part of the San Clemente rail line. So, you know, as soon as scientists and officials and transit agencies there saw that there was some movement, they closed it down and right away went into emergency repairs, approved funding for that and got to work. But that took six months and it had just opened. And two weeks later, we hear about this landslide. So it's closed again. What's been the public response to this? You know, I think at first passengers were annoyed and upset and, you know, of course, interrupted from, you know, their travels. Many people used it for commuting, for school, uh, to visit family, right? But I mean, like I said, those repairs took six months. So I think this time around, they've just gotten used to having that bus bridge. Um, I know I've talked to some people that relied on the train to travel to Orange County and they just cut that travel down. They just weren't taking that train plus the bus over to Orange County so much or the other way around as well. Some are okay with the bus bridge. It doesn't really, you know, bother them. I think it just varies from person to person and now it's nothing new. 
right? From the last six months, it's just another closure. So here we are again. And it really makes you think about the long-term ridership there. Will people, you know, kind of keep putting up with these sort of delays? You also recently spoke with Mike Levin. He's the Democratic congressman from California's 49th district. He was there visiting the site of this landslide. And here's some of what he told you. We know that extreme weather over the next years and decades will continue to get worse, not better. And we've got to be able to react to our changing climate. And part of that resiliency uh, means that we've got to look at relocating these tracks. Let's talk about relocating the tracks. What do we know about the plan to maybe move the train tracks? You know, from that conversation with Congressman Levin, it sounds like the San Diego region will be seeing the relocation of the tracks before Orange County. There's some projects that are shovel ready. There are some that are still in the planning stages. But according to Levin, the funding for the planning, the design and engineering for some of the projects to relocate the tracks in North County, the funding has been secured. And those are projects that are estimated to be in the billions. And Orange County has yet to start the pro- that whole process. So they haven't really gone into the studies or the planning or the engineering. And I know that that is next on his docket and something he's advocating for, especially after, you know, the, these recent closures and the landslide. I think it just brings that urgency up even more and something that he is advocating for. And that's kind of a bummer to hear that they're moving inland. Obviously, it sounds like that they have to, but that ride up there is just so beautiful when you're going right along the ocean there. And we know that these trains, they run right along the coastline in parts of North County and even up into Orange County. Do we have any idea of what challenges that presents when looking for long-term fixes? It is a beautiful ride. And, you know, it is unfortunate because when, you know, that coastline, it's just, it's a sight to see and... It's sad. I, I mean, it is sad, but we have to move them inland. And some of the challenges that I see over moving them inland are going to be permitting, approvals, um, and funding this, right? Um, I don't know if everyone's going to be okay with this right away. And time, It's. I feel like it's going to take a long time. I don't anticipate it happening overnight, um, maybe even within Levin's terms, uh, term while he serves. And so I don't know when we'll see it. And I just hope nobody gets hurt while we wait for those solutions to come through. And in the meantime, we can't forget about Mother Nature and the weather and what we're going to be seeing throughout that process and how it's only going to impact our coast even more. I've been speaking with Tanya Thorne, North County reporter for KPBS News. And Tanya, thanks so much for joining us here on Roundtable. Thanks for having me, Matt. That's going to wrap up this week's edition of KPBS Roundtable. I want to thank all of our guests this week, NBC7's political reporter Priya Shreether, David Garrick from the San Diego Union-Tribune, and KPBS's Tanya Thorne. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show. Leave us a voicemail at 619-452-0228. You can also email us at roundtable at kpbs.org. Don't forget, our show is also a podcast. You can listen to it anytime. Roundtable airs on KPBS Fridays at noon and again on Sundays at 6 a.m. Roundtable is produced by Andrew Bracken, who is also filling in as senior producer. Rebecca Chacon is our technical director, and I'm your host, Matt Hoffman. Thanks so much for being here with us. Have a great weekend.
KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu.